As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. God is a mystery, and, and we need to, uh, to respect this mystery. And maybe that's the whole point. Maybe the whole point why God may give different people different texts and allow for many different interpretations, even from the same text. The understanding of Christianity is because Jesus is a divine person, he is worthy of worship. Now, I would just sort of, from my own perspective, think that a Muslim would not be comfortable in worshiping Jesus. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians discussing and debating the topics that matter to all of us. I'm your host, Andy Kind, and today I'm delighted to be introducing an Unbelievable presented by Justin Briley, looking at the differences between Christianity and Islam. In the show, Abdullah Galadari and Joshua Sidueidi engage in a thought-provoking discussion on the reconciliation of Christianity and Islam. Abdullah argues that the Quran's interpretation of Jesus' deity may align with Christian theology, while Joshua defends a monarchical view of the Trinity. Both speakers acknowledge common ground but also identify areas of disagreement, highlighting the complexity of the relationship between Islam and Christianity. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. We're in for a fascinating discussion today, taking another listen of a show hosted by Justin Briley. When it comes to the deity of Christ and the Trinity, Christians and Muslims, the Bible and the Quran may have more in common than we think, says one of my guests, Abdullah Galadari. Abdullah is an Islamic scholar whose book, Quranic Hermeneutics, has been creating a wave of interest in the interfaith community and some controversy in the Muslim community. He joins me today to talk about the way the Quran interprets, in his view, the claims about the deity of Christ found in the Gospels. And he's going to be in conversation with my other guest, Christian theologian, Joshua Sidiwade. Now, Joshua has a background in discussing the Trinity with Muslims and is a leading exponent of what's sometimes called a monarchical view of the Trinity, as expressed in his PhD thesis on the metaphysics of the Trinity. So today we're having very much, I think, a collegial friendly discussion on how much Christians and Muslims can in fact be reconciled on Jesus and the Trinity. And if you want links to both my guests, I'll make sure they are there with today's show as well. So welcome, Abdullah and Joshua, to the show today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Justin. It's great to have you both with me. Abdullah, let's start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you come to be an Islamic scholar writing this specific book? Well, uh, of course, in my previous incarnation, I was really not an Islamic scholar, and I wouldn't even call myself an Islamic scholar maybe even today, but uh, I, I actually started uh, being an engineer in my previous incarnation. and. Uh, uh, however, I wanted to actually change career paths. I wanted to really uh, have some answers to the big questions in life, which has always uh, were with me 
ever since childhood. And so I decided to actually go back to school and uh, get a, a, another degree in the humanities and religious studies and Islamic studies. And uh, that's how I actually started uh, working on more research in Islamic studies. Fantastic. Tell me about this new book then, um, which I think is based off your research, Quranic Hermeneutics. Um, what does that mean? And, and what, what is it about in a nutshell? Well, Quranic hermeneutics is basically a method that I propose on a way to uh, have some form of interpreting the Quran. Uh, it's a method which I call intertextual polysemy, looking how the Quran uses polysemous terms and how they're linking them with each other, both within the Quran and itself and between the Quran as well with, for example, the Bible and other biblical literature. I was going to say specifically, one of the chapters I know deals very much with the Gospel of John. Do you want, do you want to just talk about how, how it relates to that and the language used there? Exactly. So there are three chapters in the book that is fully devoted on the intertextualities between the Quran and the Gospel of John. And uh, I try as much as possible not to really delve at all into uh, theology and Christology. All that I try to show is basically that if we compare the texts themselves, if we compare the Quran with the Gospel of John, they're not really in contradiction. How we interpret each one of those texts may contradict, but the texts themselves do not necessarily contradict one another. And so that was the main focus of the three chapters that I used to show the parallelism between the Quran and the Gospel of John. So... This was the interesting thing I found about the book it is one of your main claims is that the Quran doesn't necessarily reject the Gospels. It interprets them. What, what do you mean by that? Well, it means that the Quran basically accepts the Gospels. It's not really uh, trying to say that uh, there was some kind of changes that happened into the text of the Gospels or anything like that. Like a lot of the Muslims, for example, they have the concept of what is called tahrif or the uh, uh, corruption of the scriptures, of the previous scriptures. And I try to show that is not what the Quran is trying to, um, to talk about when it uses the, the term tahrif. Uh, and in reality, it's just trying to tell the people, for example, of the book, well, instead of straying away from your book, but stand upon your book and, and look into the book. And... Uh, Along with that, the Quran is trying to interpret the, the Bible. It starts to interpret, for example, in my, uh, in my book, the Gospel of John, uh, interpreting what the Logos is according to the Quran. So it's interpreting it. It's not trying to say, well, this is wrong and this is the correct thing. It's just saying that this is perhaps what it should be interpreted as. And is this why the book, as I said, is somewhat controversial in, in parts of the Islamic community? Because... That is taking quite a different line, obviously, than, than many Muslims take when it comes to the way they understand the Gospels. Yes, absolutely. It, it does create controversy, uh, not only amongst the Muslims, but also uh, with some Christian uh, circles as well. Uh, and maybe perhaps the reason is because uh, many religions, especially like Christianity and Islam, they try to win in followers. And so they try to be in competition with one another. And when you want to be in competition with one another, uh, each party wants to show, well, you see, we're different from them, and so we're better. But when you show a lot of commonalities, then, then some people would say, okay, then, then what's the difference between now us and them? There's no difference, and therefore, where, how are we going to compete? 
So, so it is controversial in, in some circles, of course, within uh, the Muslim communities, as well as perhaps in some of the Christian communities. Well, that's really interesting. That's something we can return to later in the conversation with, with Joshua. Joshua, welcome to the show as well. Um, it's great to have you on for the first time, both of you today on the show. Um, Joshua, I've been wanting to have you on for years because I've, I've been aware of your, your work, your debates that you've had and your own progression to a, a very fine scholar and theologian yourself. Um, t- tell us a bit of, of your own background, though. How, how did you first get into talking about debating the Trinity, uh, especially with, with Muslims to start out with, Joshua? Okay, yeah. So it's sort of linked to my own personal sort of story um, in that I became a Christian when I was 19 years old based off of a religious experience. Now, prior to that religious experience, I was living a completely different life. And my main sort of goal in life was American football. I wanted to play American football and, you know, get famous and all those sort of things. Um, but then I had this religious experience that completely changed my life and it reorientated my thinking. And I realized that actually I want to, I want to ask and, and try and answer the deep questions about life. And so after that experience, I then focused my, my thoughts and my life on, on wanting to sort of develop academically. So I decided to go and study theology. Um, and then I decided to go in sort of the postgraduate level and, and get a PhD focusing on, on Christianity. And when I was sort of thinking of PhD topics, I was always interested in, you know, what, what is the Trinity? And I wanted to use my PhD, not just on something that I could, you know, write a, you know, 80,000 word dissertation, but I wanted to do something that actually could help me uh, spiritually um, in understanding God better. And so I decided to focus in my PhD on the Trinity. And also whilst I was doing that, I was, I was visiting Speaker's Corner as well um, in London. And yeah, it was a great experience in encountering Muslims and, and having great conversations with them. And it was even developmental for myself because it was able to help me think through some of the, the positions that I hold to on the Trinity. And so, yeah, I, I, it was sort of falling into um, study that I got into through this experience. And then just from it, I, I fell in love with study and, and theological sort of deep questions and trying to answer them. Brilliant. And, and so t- tell us a bit about sort of where that's taken you in terms of your view of the Trinity. Um, this may be a new concept to many people, this, this, what I've described as the monarchical view of the Trinity. Can you, can you again express it in a nutshell for, for listeners? Yeah. So the monarchical view, um, sort of in a nutshell is the idea that the one God is identified as the father. So instead of identifying the Trinity and saying God is tripersonal or three persons in one, the one God is actually solely the father. However, the Son and the Spirit are divine as well, and they're divine in the same way as the Father is divine. So if we are sort of putting it in a slogan way, you'll say that there are three divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of them are consubstantial. That means they share the same nature. There's no distinction between them there. Yet the one God is identified as the Father. He is the one God because he is the source of all things, and he comes from nothing. And so he can bear the name God. Um, and so it's, it's a bit of a, it's a strange view for some people when they first encounter it, because they're like, well, what do you mean God is not tripersonal? But what I sort of, why I like this view is because I do believe it corresponds to scripture a lot better than the sort of conventional view. And then also I, I believe it, it's the historically sort of grounded view. When we look at the, the history of the church in the, in the first four centuries, what was their understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity? I would sort of, in my sort of opinion, say, well, it was a monarchical view, the idea that the one God is the father and there are two 
other divine persons who are consubstantial with the Father, they share the same nature as him. And, and, and do, does this kind of take us into the territory, which I know is controversial in some Christian circles, of a sort of hierarchical slash kind of the, the spirit and the son being in some way subject to the father or uh, in some way? What, how does it interact with those kinds yeah. of views? Yeah, so it definitely would. And, and I think we can affirm a hierarchy in one sense and then negate it in another sense. And the, the one that we want to negate is an ontological hierarchy in that the son and the spirit are subordinate to the father because they share, they have a different nature from him. So for example, we are subordinate to God because he has a divine nature. We have a human nature. So that would be a type of subordinationism that we want to negate and say, no, that's that, not That correct. would be a heresy as far as you're concerned. Yeah, that, that will be heretical. That will be incorrect. Yeah, that will be wrong. And it's not something the monarchical view affirms. But the monarchical simply, uh, the view simply affirms that there is a relational hierarchy in that the father is greater than the son based on the relation that he bears to the son in that he is the father, he is the source of the son. And so that's why there is a distinction. So I normally give an analogy. Um, you can think about it in the sort of a family sense. Your father, if you have a father and you have a, a child, the father and child are different in one sense and they're, they're equal in another sense. They're equal in their nature. So there's no hierarchical subordination when it comes to what they are. But based on their relation, there is a hierarchy. The father in some way should be superior to the son. It will be strange if, you, if the son said to the father, go and tidy your room. I mean, I mean, that will be strange, but it's not strange when, when a father says it to their child because of that relational yeah. distinction between yeah. them. And yeah, so in the Trinity, there's that relational distinction in that the father is the source of the, the son and the spirit. And so he has a relational superiority. But when it comes to their nature, they share the same nature and they're equally perfect. Okay, that very interesting. I'm sure we could do a whole debate, you know, with possibly other, other points of view on that. Um, but as far as you're concerned, this is a perfectly orthodox way of understanding uh, Trinitarian theology. Um, I, I mean, I'll be very interested to come back in a moment then to, to see how that has been helpful for you in engaging with Muslims and their objections to, to the Trinity in a moment, Joshua. But um Let's maybe first just define what the problems are, and, and maybe Abdullah, you could you could spell out for us some of the typical objections that a Muslim would have to the idea of the Trinity. I think most people are very aware um, that you know, as soon as you get into a discussion between a Muslim and a Christian, one of the first things that's going to arise is, well, how can you believe God is three persons in one, uh, or that there are three gods, or, or whatever? Um, and and just just take us to some of the specific passages in the Quran that deal with this, Abdullah, and, and what the typical objections are from Muslims towards the, the Trinity as it's typically expressed? Yes, uh, thank you for that. One of the major issues that uh, the Quran has is about Jesus not being begotten of God because the Quran frequently says that uh, Jesus is not begotten of God. Uh, and uh, of course, I mean, immediately once one would say, well, that's obviously something that would go against the Gospel of John. And therefore, there is a contradiction. Uh, however, what I try to show is that in reality, that is not what the Quran is trying to suggest. It is not suggesting that the Gospel of John is incorrect in its way of its uh, in its way describing who Jesus is as the logos, as the Word that has uh, that has uh, incarnated in flesh. So in reality, when we do look into the Quranic passages, especially whenever it actually says that uh, Jesus is not begotten of God, 
every single time it uses the word walad, it says that Jesus is not walad of God, is not begotten of God. But immediately afterwards, it says that whatever God will, God says be, and it becomes kun shayakun in Arabic. And so every single time it says, well, don't say walad, don't say begotten, it says kun. But if we try to really understand what those terms really mean in the Arabic language, it is very difficult. What is the nuance in the difference between the concept of tawlid, which is to, to beget in Arabic, and the concept of taqween, which means to, to become in Arabic? Because both of them means to generate. So both terms really mean to generate. And because both terms really mean to generate, it's very difficult even for people who are um, uh, uh, Arab speakers to really try to figure out, well, what's really the difference between them? And some might, for example, say, well, maybe tawlid is, is biological begetting and maybe taqween is just generation through other means. But even in the Arab-speaking world today, for example, we do use the word tawlid for even not necessarily biological begetting. For example, generating electricity, we use the word tawlid. Uh, so it just simply means to generate. So what's the difference between tawlid and taqween? It's a very, very fine line. There's a nuance which perhaps nobody really knows. But the Quran seems to be very adamant. No, don't say tawlid. Don't say be, be, be getting through tawlid, but say generating through taqween instead. And so what I argue is that maybe that's what the Quran is trying to interpret the logos in the Gospel of John. Because in the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then it says, and the Word was God. Well, what does it mean? Well, of course, a lot of the, for example, uh, dialogues that exist between Christianity and Judaism, they would simply say, well, as, as soon as uh, John says, and the word was God, now it became something that is not Jewish. However, I argue that is very much Jewish. Why? Because we all know that the prologue of the Gospel of John is trying to parallel the prologue of Genesis and, and how creation came to be. And so if we read Genesis independent from the Gospel of John, of course, God is the source of all things that were created. And the word that God speaks to create everything is the Hebrew Yehi, which is from the root Haya, which means let there be. So in other words, be. The, the Septuagint, for example, uses genithito. And actually the word genithito coming from the Greek genomai means to generate. Now, so in the beginning was the word. If we understand now that the word is the word be, which in Arabic would be kun, and it wouldn't be walad, it would be kun, to be. So if we say that the word is actually the word be, which was with God, um, uh, from the beginning, and then that the word itself was God. Well, why would, the, wh why would the Gospel of John say that the word itself was God? If we do look into the, uh, the Bible, for example, in Exodus 3.14, how does God actually uh, uh, describe itself to Moses? It says, esher I will be who I will be. So God describes itself with the word be, with the, with the root uh, haya, which in Arabic would be kun. Uh, so it's, it's as if it's saying akun men akun in Arabic. So I will be who I will be. Uh, the Quran usually translates this encounter between God and Moses with inni and Allah. I am who I am God. So basically, maybe what the Quran is trying to say, don't say walad, because the word walad 
has no connection with the name of God, has no connection with the word that created everything. However, when we use the word kun, then that is actually uh, the word of be, which describes how everything was created according to uh, Genesis and is itself associated with, with the name of God. Actually, in, in, uh, in Hebrew, uh, of course, we have the tetragrammaton, which is, uh, of course, nobody knows how it is exactly pronounced, but it is uh, something like Yahweh. And itself is perhaps rooted in the, in the term haya. And, uh, uh, and so perhaps what the Gospel of John is trying to do is that, well, I'm not going to use the name of God because in the Jewish uh, tradition, uh, putting the name of, of God or writing the name of God is sometimes considered to be very um, holy uh, and that uh, it's usually used like putting instead some other names like uh, the Lord, like Adonai, Hashem, or sometimes Memra, the word, which perhaps what the Gospel of John here is doing. So let me just try to summarize this as, as far as I've understood it then, Abdullah. So, so when the Quran objects to the idea that God begets, and, and this would be, you know, the typical objection of, of Shirk, the idea of associating God with other deities and so on, um, that, 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 that seems to you normally be taken as, as a, an objection to the idea of um, a Trinitarian view or, or Jesus as the son of God and so on. But you say, no, as soon as it said that, it says, don't use this word beget, but but rather the word be. Every, anything God comes from God is is kind of immediately generated or something like like that. And that this this then you find is is an interpretation of of the logos in the, the beginning of John's gospel. And and from that point of view, you, you're saying, is it then that that in your view it's plausible to believe that the Quran is actually not necessarily discounting in some sense the divinity of Jesus uh, as as expressed there, but just simply trying to reinterpret it as not some kind of form of, you know, additional person in, in this way? Well, I'm, I'm, I try to stay away from theology and Christology in the Quran and just comparing the text. So the texts themselves, they don't contradict one another. Now, what does that mean is a different story. Uh, like, for example, even in the early churches, for example, the early churches, they had uh, uh, different Christologies, uh, different understandings of who Christ is, the divinity of Christ, and, and so forth. But did they all have different texts? No, they all use the exact same text. They all use the same gospels. They didn't use anything different. Yet they reached different conclusions from within the same text. So here in the Quran, you can... Of course, be, you can consider yourself having some kind of an orthodox view of, of, the, uh, of Christ, for example, and still be able to see that in the Quran. You can have maybe an Aryan view and still see that in the Quran. You can have a, a completely different view um, uh, and completely discounting the divinity of Christ and still see that as well in, in the Quran. So you can really pretty much have all the different views. And if you ask me personally, I mean, what? What makes me me as a human being right now in front of you? Every single cell of my body that exists today did not exist 10 years ago. So my whole physicality that exists today is very different than what it was 10 years ago. Does that mean I was a different person 10 years ago than I am today? Is my physical body what makes me who I am? I have no idea. I mean, some people would say, well, the, the, the humans are made up of, you know, like uh, the, uh, the body and the soul. 
And then there's the idea about whether it's uh, the soul is distinct from the body or is part of the body or something like that. Nobody really knows. And of course, there are many different philosophers out there that talk about what's, what is consciousness and what makes a human human and, and so forth. But if we don't know who we are, then how dare we even try to speculate who God is? Right? So if I, if I can't even tell you what my essence really is, if I don't really know what my essence is as a human being, how will I even be able to determine and interpret the essence of God? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting point. We need to take a quick break now, but our debate topic for today is the differences and similarities between Christianity and Islam. In a moment, we'll return to the debate, but let us know what you think. You can email us, unbelievable at premier.org.uk, or get in touch via social media. On X, formerly known as Twitter, we're found at unbelievablefe, that's Foxtrot Echo, at Premier Unbelievable for Instagram, or facebook.com forward slash Premier Unbelievable on Facebook if you want to interact. Don't go away. We will be back in just a moment. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back. You're listening to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians, skeptics, agnostics, and all those in between thinking about the topics that matter to every single one of us. I am Andy Kind, and we are about to rejoin a fascinating discussion between Abdullah Galadari and Joshua Sidueidi, hosted by Justin Briley. They are engaged in a thought-provoking discussion, finding common ground between the Bible and the Quran. Let's see who convinces you. Let's get back into it. So, yeah, I, I know, Joshua, that you have only recently come to sort of read yourself the work of Abdullah and, and start to interact. So so there's a lot you've got to digest here uh, and so on. But but what's your initial thoughts on this quite interesting way of understanding and interpreting the relationship of the Quran with the claims there right at the beginning of the Gospel of John? Yes, so I, I find it a very interesting proposal um, and something that I would like to look further into. Um, but it's just sort of trying to understand how far the Quran allows you to affirm the divinity of Christ. Um, because obviously as a Christian or someone who holds to the, the authority of the council, so the council of Chalcedon in 451, the affirmation of the divinity of Christ was that he is a fully divine person. And then what we have in Constantinople is that that divinity that he has is the same as the father. And so 
What I'm interested to understand is how far you can do that, because also what we find in the councils is that there is an affirmation of a numerical distinction between them. The person who is the word, who's understood to be the word in, in Christian theology is numerically distinct from the father. And so why this sort of a question thrown back sort of to, to Abdullah, just to understand just better and, and to help me understand your, your proposal better, um, is the, the word that is in John, according to the Quranic sort of, um, understanding, is it something that's numerically distinct from God or is it, is it God? Is it numerically identical? So do we have two things there, two numerically distinct things, or do we just have one thing and the word is just like myself, my word is something that's me, or do we have something numerically distinct? So that, that's something I'll, I'd like to understand. That's a very fair and good question. Um, so is this B, this Kun, um, is it distinct from God itself? Well, it's very difficult really uh, from the Quran to determine whether the Kun itself is, uh, is the essence of God, is in itself God, or is it just maybe a name of God as it is in the, for example, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, where God is, is Ehya Asher Ehya, I will be who I will be. Uh, it's very difficult really to determine exactly um, what the Quran tries to, to suggest. But like, for example, one of the passages in the Quran that uh, tries to, um, um, uh, to say about using numbers and, and the, the numerical thing, uh, the Quran is very adamant uh, that it, there is no three, there is only one. And a lot of the, uh, for example, Muslims, they usually interpret one of those passages. Like I, I can tell you what that passage is. It's, it's Quran 4171, which says, O people of the book, don't um, um, go to extremes regarding your faith and say nothing about God except the truth. And then it says the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, is a messenger of God, um, and his word, whom he gave to Mary, uh, and a spirit from him. And so believe in God and his messengers. And do not say three, desist, it is better for you, for God is only one God. And a lot of the uh, Muslim interpreters, of course, will usually read this passage as denying the Trinity. But it can be read not necessarily as denying the Trinity, because all it's saying is that don't say three. I mean, if, if we compare this, for example, with the Athanasian Creed, the Athanasian Creed says like the Father is eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal, the Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, the Holy Spirit unlimited. Um, uh, and yet there are not three um, uh, um, eternals. There are not three um, infinites or unlimited. It's only one. And, and the Athanasian Creed frequently says, don't say three, it's only one. And so we can even read this passage in the Quran to actually say, well, don't say three, just say one. So it doesn't really necessarily denounce the Trinity per se. Uh, it, it can be read. And again, that's why I try to make a distinction between what the text says and what theologians usually try to interpret, uh, because there could be a distinction. We can interpret this perhaps as denying the Trinity, but it can be actually interpreted maybe denying some kind of maybe an Arian kind of Christology in which we, um, we shouldn't basically make a distinction. Uh, it's only one. I mean, there are many different ways to interpret this. And, and I just keep the, the interpretation for the people to make, and I'll just look into the text as they are. Well, first of all, Joshua, sketch out kind of where typically 
the, the, the debate tends to revolve when you are having this conversation with, with Muslims. And then we'll talk a bit about, you know, how you think Abdullah's synthesis, if you like, kind of speaks to all of this. What, what do you find are the, are the typical views, though, that you're encountering in the way you tend to respond to them yourself, Joshua? Yeah, so generally you normally see um, a lot of Muslims when I'm speaking to them is that, that there's the, the understanding of the Trinity is something which is not affirmed by the Quran um, or Islamic theology. It's not possible that it could be, uh, specifically because you have this equating of God, Allah, with another being, a being that's numerically distinct from him. And that is something which cannot be, and if my understanding, it's an unforgivable sin to associate partners with God. And so the understanding is that if we, so a Muslim would say, if we accept the Trinity, we are affirming that the idea that there are three divine persons, the son and the spirit are consubstantial. They share the same nature as the father. So in a way you are associating partners with him. And so that would be sort of one issue that they would say, well, clearly the Quran says you cannot affirm that. And so that's something that you cannot hold to. Um, and then a no, sort of a general uh, objection that you'll find is normally the philosophical aspects where they'll say, well, there's good reason why the Quran even says that. It's not even just because it's not that Allah has these partners. It's that it's not even logically possible. It's not metaphysically or logically possible that there could be two other uh, two other divine persons in addition to Allah. So this idea of having three persons and then also you're saying there is only one God, there seems to be some form of contradiction there. So generally it's the idea theologically that God has said this is just not correct. And then secondly, you sort of see a philosophical objection, which is, well, it just doesn't make sense. It's incoherent. You cannot have three divine persons and one God. And and is your work generally speaking to the second of those two objections, saying that it, it is logically coherent? Uh, is that is that where you would come down? Yes, yeah. So I, I sort of work more, I would say, academic, sort of my academic writings is normally on the philosophical aspects of Christianity. Um, so yeah, I've been trying to deal with these sort of logical problem of the Trinity issues. And so that's mainly where my focus is. But I think sort of the view that I'm um, sort of defending does speak to that first issue as well, in a way. Okay. I mean, just very briefly, yeah. just before we come back to Abdullah's point there, then what, you know, when, when you're typically down at speaker's corner mm -hmm. and you're, you're meeting those common mm -hmm. objections to the Trinity, how does this monarchical, this more hierarchical view, if you like, of the Trinity help to engage people's objections there? Oh yeah. Um, I think it, for me, it deals with the general problems that you'll find, um, because there is no philosophical incoherence because the idea here is that the one God is identified as the father. And so when I'm normally discussing this sort of issue, I would start off by saying, firstly, the, the term God is an ambiguous word. And it's quite evident that it is ambiguous because we can affirm many things as God and we're not necessarily meaning the same thing. So God is an ambiguous word. But and, and given this ambiguity, we have at least two ways of understanding it. And what we find in the Bible and what we find sort of in church history is that there are these two ways. One way is, is using the word God as a name for a being. And another way is using the word God as a predicate or an adjective. So sort of at a general level, you can see this with the word brown. Brown can be used as a name for something, but it can be used as an adjective to sort of describe a characteristic of someone. And so sort of, I, I would say with the monarchical view, what you understand is that there's one way of using the word God as a name, and there's one way of using the word God as an adjective. When we use the word God as an adjective, it applies equally to each of the persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So we can affirm the Son is God and we can affirm the Holy Spirit's God um, as with the Father because they have that, that sort of characteristic of being perfect. They are divine and so they can be predicated the word God. However, with that first usage of the word God as a name, that's solely given to the Father alone. And we see this throughout the New Testament where 99% of the passages would be saying the term hotheos, the God, applies to the Father. And you see actually in the New Testament, sometimes it's just common knowledge that they don't even use the word Father. So when Paul is speaking, he would say the God, you know, the God, or he'll say the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, or he'll use the word God um, for the Father, and he wouldn't even need to use the word um, Father because it's just common knowledge that the name God was given to the Father. And so when you're then dealing with a philosophical issue, you would simply say, well, when we're trying to count gods, when we're trying to be monotheistic, which, which meaning of the word God is important? Well, the meaning of the word God that's important is the name. How many divine persons bear the name God in the Trinity? There is only one, the Father alone, because he is the sole source, the ultimate source of all things. The Son and the Spirit eternally come from him. And so that's why he can bear this name, God. And so there is no philosophical problem because there's only one God and that one God is applicable to the Father alone. Right. Yeah. That, that's really a really helpful way of, of help to spell out the way you would then engage, yeah. engage this issue with, with a Muslim who has this objection. Yeah. Uh, so, so coming back to Abdullah then, um, I mean, again, as I said before, you, you've only recently encountered this kind of way of, of maybe bringing together the Quran and John's gospel in this way. Uh, do, do, how do you think it speaks to it, uh, especially, you know, given what Abdullah had to say there in that last segment about the, the yeah. you know, in answer to your question about the way, whether the, or not this is a, a different being, you're talking about two, two yeah. different sort of things or, or whatever. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I'm very, like I said before, I'm very interested in this proposal and uh, it's definitely original because I haven't encountered it um, before in sort of my own limited experience. But something I am I'm just slightly wary of is... Um, this sort of divide between uh, the text and the theology of the text, um, because I know, as Abdullah, you were saying, is that you are only looking at the text and you're not trying to step into the theological sort of issues. Um, but my only issue is that I think, in my own mind, you can't really divide those two things. There's sort of, I would say, a false dichotomy there, because the text, well, I would say even in a Christian perspective, the text is read in light of the teaching of the church. And so we interpret the text in light of it. And so if you just have the text alone, you can have hundreds of interpretations and hundreds of different ways of understanding it. Textually, it could mean this or it could mean that. But when we want to come to the truth of the matter on an issue, I think we need to understand what the interpretation is so we can correctly apply it to our lives. And so I would say the way then you have to do that is by then battling with the theology, because if the Quran does allow us to you know affirm this divinity of christ then it does seem to me sort of if we look at the theological sense well the divinity of christ understood in the christian context is that he shares the same divinity as the father it's not a lesser divinity and so then what you are really saying is that there are in, in a way that there's allowed to be two divine persons in an islamic worldview that's sort of in my my opinion but if you just go with the text you would say it just allows it to be open but i think if you're going to understand, um, I would say the issue further, we have to also battle with the theology. And I think the theological implications might be troublesome um, so for sort of bringing the Islamic view and, and the Christian view together. Abdullah. 
Thank you so much for that, uh, Joshua. Uh, yes, I do. I do, of course, understand why people would want to know what would the interpretation be. But uh, as I said, I mean, if I don't even know what makes me, me as a human being, I mean, is my physical body what makes me? Is my soul what makes me? Is my spirit what makes me? I mean, you can even think of the human as a trinity, right? With uh, body, soul, and spirit. Or even a different kind of trinity, according to the Quran. According to the Quran, it's even a different kind of trinity. You've got um, God's created um, the human um, from dust and from water, made it out of um, into clay, and then breathed into this clay from God's spirit, and and this person became alive. So there is this kind of also um, a, a, a trinity of a human. Because if we think of the four basic elements in the ancient world, the uh, the human is made out of earth, made out of water made out of air. Uh, the only thing it's not made out of is the fire, perhaps. But, but the three elements, the three basic elements of the ancient world is, is what the human being is made out of. So, so the human is made out of three elements, maybe. Maybe um, also um, uh, the metaphysical things, such as the, the soul, spirit, and body, and so forth. But, but all of these things, I mean, if I don't even know what makes me me in reality, the truth of the matter, what is my essence, if I have no idea what that is, then maybe before I even try to speculate, well, what is the essence of God and, and try to understand the truth of the matter of God's essence and, and if God is a trinity and if God is three different elements or three different persons of the trinity, well, maybe I should first ask myself, well, what am I? And if I figure that out first, and then maybe I can look into <laughs> theology. So I, I do fully understand. I mean, many people, okay, but what does it mean? We need to know what it means. But I think maybe we need to have this kind of humility and humbleness that maybe these things about God is a mystery. And one of the things about the, um, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Oriental churches as well, they emphasize negative theology. We can say maybe what God is not, but it's very difficult to say what God is because God is a mystery and, and we need to, uh, to respect this mystery. And maybe that's the whole point. Maybe the whole point why God may give different people different texts and allow for many different interpretations, even from the same text, looking into the, um, the early churches, for example, and their big debates about Christology. Well, maybe because the, the, the goal is for people to seek the truth, to seek God. And if everybody said, well, God is A, B, C, D, then nobody will be seeking the truth because everybody will tell you, well, God is A, B, C, D. But if God, as you said, Joshua, is, is very ambiguous, that's the beauty. Because God is very ambiguous, God is a mystery. And so it allows for people to try to seek who God is and what the truth really is. And maybe that's the purpose of, of why God wanted to create humans. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's, that's interesting. My, my only sort of thought on that would be that I, I do understand what you're saying, but I, I feel we also need to take into account that there is an understanding that we are to have a relationship with God. So God is relational. And so if we are to stand in a relationship with God, we need to have some or a good understanding of the God that we are in a relationship with. If I was in a relationship with my wife, but I absolutely knew nothing about her and I just said she was a mystery, um, it won't be a very good relationship. Um, but there is an understanding that we are in a relationship with God. We stand in this relationship. And if we are to be able to um, fulfill the expectations of the relationship and for God to fulfill the expectations that he has as well for, for us, then we will need to have some understanding. And so what I think is, is good to sort of emphasize is 
in sort of Christian theology, we would say that you can apprehend what God has revealed of himself, but you cannot comprehend it in that we are not going to fully understand everything about God. But because God has revealed things about himself, we can apprehend it. We can come to some form of a conceptual understanding of these things. Because if we can't, then I don't know how we can enter into a authentic relationship with him. And so I, for me personally, sort of maybe it's my, my philosophical sort of hat that I, I wear all the time, but, but I, I, I don't really like the word mystery in that I think, I, I, I do believe mystery, there is always a myst mystery or my mystical element of theology. But I do believe that sometimes we, we pull the mystery card too early when I don't think we have warrant to do that yet. Um, because I would say if we've been able to develop our understandings of many things in the world, why can't we do the same thing for God? And not God from an a priori perspective in that I'm sitting on my couch and God hasn't revealed anything and I'm just going to think and know about God but an a posteriori perspective saying, because God has revealed things about him and based on this revelation, he wants us to be in a relationship with him, then we should be able to understand things about him. And I think the doctrine of God, the nature of what God is, is extremely important if we're going to have that type of relationship. And so for me, the doctrine of the Trinity, I would say, and the incarnation of, of, of the son as the person of Jesus are fundamental things that I think we can come to a good level of understanding of. And, and I just wanted to come in on this, Abdullah, because we've spoken about just those first verse or two of, of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the way that you do believe that speaks both to, obviously, the, the Hebrew account of that and the way that you believe the Quran is, is, if you like, speaking to that. But of course, as as that passage goes on, John says, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. Um, this is, you know, the central claim, if you like, of, of Christianity, that that word, that logos, uh, that God became human, um, the incarnation. So now, is that a kind of fundamental separating point between Islam and Christianity? Most people would assume it is. Um, what's, what's your view on, on the, the incarnation specifically? I don't think it does have any issues with the understanding from the Gospel of John, because uh, as you just said, the thing is in the Quran, for example, it does say that the likeness of Jesus unto God is like that of Adam. He created him of dust and then said to him, be, and he becomes. So, so, so we, here we do see, because a lot of people also usually think that the word be is the word of creation. But in this passage, there's also a distinction between creation and being. Um, um, this, there, there's this ontological issue, a distinction between them. Because it says that God created him of dust. It's a past tense. God created the, the physical flesh and then said to the physical flesh, be. And so this be now becomes in the, into that flesh after it had been already created. So... So I don't see in here that the Quran, again, we, it's not necessarily contradicting the Gospel of John at all. And it, it does affirm that the word, that the kun, has become in the flesh, um, uh, in the form of, of Jesus. There's no distinction in there. And to answer Joshua, let me actually ask Joshua a question. Do you have a good relationship with yourself? Uh, <laughs> um, that's, a, that's the first time you'll answer I, I I hope, I don't know. So do I have a relationship with myself? Uh, I don't think so. 
um, in that <laughs> relations are normally dyadic in that there is at least another thing that's numerically distinct from a being that you then stand in a relationship with. So I don't know if I have a relationship with myself, <laughs> but I, I don't know. It's, it's something I need to think about. <laughs> what's, what's the point of the question there, Abdullah? Well, well that's, a good, that's, a, that's a good answer. My, my next question would be, uh, you said you have a good relationship with your wife, correct? All yes. right. Well, I try to. <laughs> you try to. Well, that, that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, um, do you know the relationship between your wife's physical flesh, her soul, and her spirit? The relationship between them? Because honestly speaking, if, if I ask myself this question, what is the relationship? If, I mean, I have no idea if I have a soul, a spirit, or, or even if my physical flesh is actually part of my own essence. But I have absolutely no idea, to be very honest and to be very truthful to myself, I don't know what's the relationship between my soul and my flesh, uh, my body, or between those and the spirit. I have no idea what the relationship is between them. But that doesn't mean that I cannot have a relationship with myself or relationship with any other human being who perhaps is also made out of a flesh, a spirit, and soul. Uh, so knowing the relationship between them does not really tell me that I cannot really have a very good relationship with, with that being without necessarily knowing that's the relationship between the essence or the different elements of the essence of that being. Yeah. Just, just in response to that, I, I would agree with you in part, but I, I would say that you can be in a relationship with, with an entity, even if you don't know many things about them. Um, or anything about them. You can stand in a relationship or in a relation, but the idea was about the value of the relationship. A relationship is bettered if I know that being better. And so um, I have, you know, a relationship with the Queen of England, even though she, never, she doesn't know who I am, but I am in a relation with her in that I am a subject um, of her, but my relationship is not good because I don't, she doesn't know anything about me. But if I was, let's say, her, her, one of her, her children or grandchildren, my relationship will be better. The only reason being is because we know each other better. And so with just the idea about the soul, my wife's um, relationship with me is better if I know more about her soul because her soul is the seat of her thinking, her emotion, her, her, the, what she likes, her wants, her desires. Those are things which are rooted in the soul. And so if I knew her soul better, that means I knew her wants better, her desires better, then I will know her a thousand times. I'll have a thousand times better relationship than if I just knew her, knew her physically. So my idea here is, is that the relationship I think is better if we know the, the relata, the, the, the thing that we're standing in a relationship with to a greater extent than if we didn't. And so the value is just a little bit, a little bit greater. Mm. Let's pause for a quick breather there. But let us know your thoughts. Send us your questions. Email us, unbelievable at premier.org.uk. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you think. And we want to get your questions answered in upcoming shows. Also, follow our new Instagram feed at Premier Unbelievable, where we regularly drop updates and opportunities for you to have your say in upcoming shows. Welcome back to our final segment here on Unbelievable. It's a really interesting discussion between Abdullah Galadari and Joshua Sidiwadi talking about the Quran and the Trinity and whether we need to rethink the relationship between the two. 
Before we get back into it, though, a quick reminder to rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Now, let's get back into this final part of our discussion. I would love to return to this issue, though, of the incarnation of Jesus, which, again, is, is you know, at one level highly mysterious. And we are, in a sense, trying to, to grasp a mystery when we just use that word. But to what extent do you feel like Abdullah's view that actually there is some way of understanding it in the Quran and, and that it's not necessarily a complete contradiction in Islam? What, what's your take on that, Joshua? Yeah, I think, again, I think if you're just going to the textual sort of level, and I'm not a textual scholar, so I, I, I can't really come back to you on your interpretation of sorry, your sort of exegesis. Um, but I would say at the textual level, from what I've seen at the sort of prima facie level, it is something that can together. But it's just when we think of, again, the theological implications of this, it seems for me to be problematic. Because a question, which I'll, I'll like you to answer in, in a second as well, is about the idea of worship of, the, of Jesus. Because the understanding in Christianity is because Jesus is a divine person, he is worthy of worship. Now, I would just, from my own perspective, think that a Muslim would not be comfortable in worshiping Jesus. But the understanding in Christianity from the first century was that they did worship him. And I've, just a verse that I would like to, I'd like to just read is just from Exodus, where God says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Now, God is saying that soul worship is given to him alone. But then what we see in the New Testament, specifically after the, the resurrection appearances, is that there is this sort of now dyadic devotional sort of pattern where cultural cultic veneration is now given to Jesus. Thing he's prayed to, his name is invoked. He's people baptize in his name. There's a Lord's Supper, hymns and psalms are, and spiritual songs are, are given to him. And so my understanding is, is that there is a recognition now that Jesus, if he is the incarnate son or the incarnate word, he is worthy of worship and that's what's done. But then my problem is I think Islam will affirm the idea that worship is given to Allah alone and none of his prophets are worthy of worship. But then you see in Christianity, Jesus is worshipped and he's worshipped as a God. And so my problem is how would you square that together? Very good question. Excellent question. And I do discuss not using these terms, but the idea of what it would mean from the Quranic perspective. As you said, you're right. The Quran does say that worship is only to God. But we also see something very interesting in the Quran. The, the Quran says that God tells the angels, I will form from clay the shape of a human or flesh. And when I breathe into it, and when I form it and breathe into it from my spirit, bow down towards it. So in other words, it's as if the angels are now worshiping this flesh. Now, if we look again in, into the, the text itself and the words and the polysemy that the Quran is using, with the word it uses when it says that uh, when God is speaking to the angels, when I form it, and it uses the word, and it's the same root word used frequently in the Quran when, whenever God establishes on its throne. So it's the same word. So it's as if this forming of the human is the way that God actually establishes on its throne. And then it says, and when I breathe into it from my spirit, so now the spirit of God is inside this flesh, which is formed or established just as God established its throne. Therefore, we could imagine 
that this flesh has now become the throne of God. And so when the angels, according to the Quran, were perhaps to bow before it, they're not really bowing before the flesh, but they're bowing before God who is now incarnate in that flesh. The spirit of God is in that flesh. So you can have that kind of an understanding as well from the Quran. Uh, so again, without looking into the theology or the Christology, the Quran does allow for, for that kind of an interpretation uh, about even whether it is okay to worship God in a different form. And I wouldn't necessarily say that you're worshiping someone other than God. You're only worshiping God, but you're worshiping God maybe in its throne. Even if we look into the Muslims today, they're, they're bowing every day towards Mecca, which is, of course, where the Kaaba is. And it's the, imagined to be the temple of God or the house of God. But every Muslim would tell you, we're, in reality, we're not really worshiping the Kaaba. We're worshiping God, and the Kaaba is only symbolizing the house of God. Who knows? There are multiple of interpretations that one can interpret, but what does it really mean when God told the angels to bow before, be, before this flesh he had formed? It could be perhaps the incarnation of God. It could be perhaps just a symbol of, of God. But it doesn't mean that uh, worship cannot be done to God through a, a different, if you like, hmm. entity or being or even like the stones of the Kaaba at the end of the day, right? It's, you're still worshiping God through that. Jo Joshua, what do, you, what do you make of that? Yeah, so my, my only issue is that I think I would say it depends again what you're understanding by worship because you, you're saying worship applies to this idea of bowing down. But what I see in the New Testament is that in the second temple period, and even prior to that, worship, and I, I'm, when I'm using the word worship, I'm using cultic veneration, devotion to a being, that was given to God alone. And that was the way that the Jews were able to distinguish themselves as monotheistic from the pagan sort of religions, because they would not sacrifice in the pagan temples. And that was the one thing that they would not do. And because their understanding is that it's not even the belief that you hold, it's the way that you practice. It's what you do as a worship devotional pattern that distinguishes you as a Jew, as a monotheist. And so the understanding is that this was such, a, such an important issue that if we worship a being that's not God, then that is idolatry. And so what then we see is when the, there's this resurrection appearance that happens to the disciples, is that they now then, as we see in the book of Acts and later in the writings of Paul, that there is this cultic veneration that's given to Jesus. And it's not given to, to God through Jesus, but it's actually given to Jesus himself as a distinct individual. And so my problem is that I don't think Islam would affirm that because, as I was saying, there's at least six characteristics of this form name, not invoking the name of God, but invoking the name of Jesus. There is baptism. So the initiation into the Christian sort of religion was not done through actually just the name of God, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also what the disciples were using, they were using the name of Jesus. We baptize you in the name of Jesus. Now, for me, again, that seems to be problematic because you don't see that happening in any other strand of Judaism, because for them, that would be idolatry. But Christians saw that actually, no, this can be done. We can pray to him. We can invoke his name. We can baptize we can have a sacrificial meal in his name. We can sing hymns to him. And so what I'm trying to say is that it seems to me that there was a complete elevation of Jesus to the same level as the Father. 
And I don't know if Islam would be able to affirm that and say the same worship that we give to Allah can also be given. And the same worship I'm talking about here can also be given to his prophets. We can, maybe there's an, there's an understanding that we can bow down to individuals because humans sit on the throne of God. But can we have this cultic veneration that actually would have been seen in Judaism to be idolatry? Can Final part of our discussion today on the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the Quran, the Bible. Is there more common ground than we may have thought? Asks Abdullah Galadari, one of my guests today. His book, Quranic Hermeneutics, has some really interesting, groundbreaking, sometimes controversial ideas on the way that he believes there is a, a commonality between the Gospel of John, especially, and the way the Quran speaks about Jesus and the Trinity. He's been in conversation today with uh, Joshua Sidjuade, and I'll make sure there are links to both of them, their academic profiles and their writing, so you can pursue this at more depth. I do want to come to the kind of question of to what extent this does build a bridge between the Quran and the Bible, Christianity and Islam in a moment, Abdullah. But just responding, first of all, to Joshua's point that he believes there's, there is something quite different about the kind of worship offered to Jesus than might be offered to a, a revered individual who God is working through or whatever. And he just doesn't see that could really fly in Islam when you look at the way Islam really draws a, a sharp distinction about the kinds of worship that can be offered. So any quick response to that before we move ahead? Uh, sure. And I'd like to thank Joshua for, for that comment. And, and that's the reason I try to make a distinction between the text and the theology or the Christology that can be interpreted from that text. When we do look into the texts of the, of the Gospels and the Quran, we don't see the contradiction. Uh, we don't see, for example, because it can be read in the Gospels that, yes, maybe you can worship Jesus as, as an entity, or maybe not necessarily. Maybe that's not what the word worship, even in the Gospel of John, after, after Jesus' glorification, and what did it mean that they were worshiping Jesus? There is a, it's open to interpretation, even within the Gospel. How was that interpreted by some Christian communities? That's their interpretation. And, but the text themselves, the Quran and the gospel, when we put them together, we don't see the contradiction. So that is why I think maybe instead of looking into what's the differences between Christianity and Islam, if we think as if Islam is just maybe, let's call it the Muslim church, and then we, what we could do is we can have some kind of an ecumenical council and bring everybody together just like the early churches had whenever they had their debates interpreting the same text, the same gospels. They were not interpreting different gospels, different texts, the same text. So when we can bring them together, the Muslims and the Christians, and say, okay, so these are the different variations of different theologies, and this is your theology. But at the end of the day, we'll keep the text themselves instead of our interpretations of them. We'll keep the text themselves as our mediators. They're the ones that would mediate our understanding rather than the other way around. It's a very interesting to hear you say that, Abdullah, because the question I wanted to get to, and, and I'll have Joshua comment on this in a moment, is what kind of a bridge are you building here between Islam and, and Christianity? And, and it's very interesting you use that idea of maybe we could even come to regard Islam as, as another essentially interpretation of Christianity. You've got your Catholics, you've got your Protestants, you've got your Baptists, and then you've got your, your Muslims all using essentially the same text. To, to that degree, presumably, is it your view that a Christian does not need to become a Muslim, that a Muslim does not need to become a Christian, that, that essentially we're all part of the same thing, just different interpretations of the same text. According to the Quran itself, for example, in chapter 5 of the Quran, Surah Al-Ma'idah, 
it repeatedly says that the people of the book need to abide by their book. It says that the, for example, the Jews need to abide by the Torah. The Christians need to abide by the gospel. And it uses present tense. It doesn't use past tense. It doesn't say that you should have used your, the Torah or you should have used the gospel. It says that in the present tense, that they have to abide. And it actually says that, oh, people of the book, you abide or you are standing upon nothing unless you abide by the Torah and the gospel. And what is interesting is that some Muslims, for example, the way they would interpret these passages in the Quran, they would say, oh, that's abrogation. These are abrogated verses. They're canceled verses. They're, and newer verses came later abrogating the former verses. But what is interesting is that according to Muslim tradition, um, some of the Muslim traditions say that the last passage that was revealed in the Quran is basically that today I have perfected your religion and completed it and completed my providence to you and, uh, and accepted Islam as your religion. And of course, the word Islam is typically now understood or interpreted as the religion of Islam because the Quran might have simply said, and I accepted the surrender to God as your religion. The question is, where is this passage in the Quran? It's also from chapter 5 in Surah Al-Ma'idah. So if the final passage believed by some of the uh, Muslim traditions is in the same chapter in the Quran, which talks about that the people of the book must abide by their own books, then how can we even try to bring up the idea that those are abrogated verses and there are newer? We're talking about the same chapter which some Muslims believe the final revelation of the Quran is saying that the people of the book must abide by the gospel and the Torah. So to answer your question is, according to the Quran, yes, very much, the Jews must abide by the Torah, or otherwise it, it, they, they, they would be in trouble. And the Christians must abide by the gospel, or otherwise they, they would be standing upon nothing. And what's interesting is that there is another passage in the Quran which says that the Jews say that the Christians stand upon nothing, and the Christians say that the Jews stand upon nothing, even though they are both reading the book. And the same thing are, um, are those who have no knowledge say the same. In other words, anybody, according to that Quranic passage, anybody who says that the Jews stand upon nothing or the Christians stand upon nothing, according to the Quran, they have no knowledge. They are standing upon something. And what is that something? That's the Torah. That's the gospel. Joshua, coming to you, I'd be interested to know just how, how novel a, a way of approaching this, this is where, compared to the Islamic thinkers and scholars you normally engage with on these issues, and whether you think this is a kind of valid way of creating a kind of a bridge, a kind of common understanding that these are all different ways into the same texts, ultimately. What's your view on this, Joshua? Yeah, so it is very novel and, yeah, very fascinating, I would say, because, yeah, I haven't encountered that normally what I would see from Muslim, and this is learned Muslims as well, they would just simply say there is an incompatibility there at the textual level, and then they would say at the theological level. But it's just made me rethink sort of the textual sort of incompatibility. Is that really there? And is it just more at that sort of theological sort of level? And so I think, yeah, from, from my own sort of, you know, limited understanding of the textual issue, I would say, yeah, it's great. And it seems to definitely establish that bridge. But then where I was, what I was saying before was, I think you can't really divorce though, the theological implications. And just another thought about that would be, we focus on the incarnation, we focus on the Trinity, but when it comes something to something like the atonement, would that be something which can be affirmed by Muslim? I would hesitate to say yes, that it can. I would say clearly they would say 
there is no, the soteriological system of Islam is incompatible with that of Christianity. But I would say even the atonement is more fundamental, even at a textual level, because the textual level is quite clear that Christ was a sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And so for me, I would say, is it because we've just focused more at these sort of incarnation and Trinity level, but when we come to other doctrines, which are fundamental in Christianity, like the atonement, can that incompatibility be seen there? I would struggle to say that, and that would be problematic for me. Hmm. Uh, it, it's so interesting. I, I wish we had more time, maybe, to go mm. through some of those other aspects uh, in that sense, but mm. we're going to have to leave it here. And I just want to say thank you for a really fascinating exchange. As you can tell, Abdullah, Joshua and myself are both relatively new to the way you approach these texts, but it's I should say thanks to Jacob Varghese, who, who was a friend of mine on the show, who suggested this this topic in the first place. And I think there's a lot of people very interested in what you're saying and the, the connections you're drawing, Abdullah, even while they're still struggling to maybe, you know, understand exactly how it all maps out theologically, uh, because that's obviously something you're, it sounds like you're very keen to, to be understood, not to be trying to make a theological case here necessarily. Just remind us as we close out what, you know, what your hope is ultimately for this. Do you want to see a kind of more of a rapprochement between Islam and Christianity through your work? Or are you simply saying, hey, here's some interesting facts about the way the texts speak to each other? What's your ultimate goal in, in all of this, Abdullah? Yes, I would like to. Uh, I do hope that, of course, that uh, Christians and Muslims could get to see that their texts, their scriptures are not in contradiction. Maybe their interpretation of their texts could be in contradiction. That is a possibility. But the texts themselves are foundational. And if I would like to use maybe Joshua's term in his theological discourse about grounding. So if we look into grounding theology into the scripture themselves. So if we will ground the, those theologies into scripture and see if they do hold things. Because at the end of the day, it's just theology is an interpretation of, of the text. And maybe, yes, we try to find out more about God. But we should also realize that, that God is infinite. God is indescribable, is beyond words. Uh, it's, for example, if someone who has never tasted anything sour, uh, how will you be able to describe to them what the lemon tastes like? You will try to use as many metaphors as you like and different interpretations and theologies and, or, or maybe we can call lemonologies or things like that. But at the end of the day, nobody will really perfectly understand it until they actually taste it for themselves. And hopefully when, when we do taste the divine ourselves, maybe then we can better understand the divine. Maybe. Any final thoughts from you, Joshua, as we close out? Yeah, so I'm really happy about even changing the conversation between Muslims and Christians because it is always that, oh, we, the one side is saying, we, we've got this better than you. And I think Abdullah saying, actually, there's a way for us to come closer on this issue. Maybe still with our distinctions, but that we can come closer on some certain things, specifically at the textual level, I would say is really good and it's something to be favoured. Great. Thank you both for being with me on the show. It's been a great conversation. I'll make sure there are links from today's show if you want to find out more about the work of Joshua or Abdullah. But for now, uh, both, thank you very much for being with me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Well, we're approaching the bell now, but a huge thank you to you, our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I've loved it. As always, let us know your thoughts. Send us your questions on email, unbelievable at premier.org.uk, 
or on social media, X formerly known as Twitter, we are at Unbelievable FE or on Facebook and Instagram at Premier Unbelievable. Please rate and review on your podcast provider. It is a huge help to the show. It helps get the podcast seen by those who don't know us yet. For now, it's been great to be with you and we'll see you next time for more discussions and debates on Unbelievable. From me, Andy Kind and the team, goodbye for now. Thank you.